Welcome to Where the Lotus Grows, Getting Dirty and Growing Strong with Kimberly Searle and Tanya Drew. As integrative sustainable movement educators and health advocates, our goal is to provide you with evidence-based information gathered from research, experts in the field, and our personal and professional experience to help you advocate for your own health and wellness. Our mission is to collaboratively navigate the thick, muddy waters of life to empower, accept, and cultivate our most authentic selves. Creative Tolerance, welcome back. Today, we have a review on Instagram from I Live to Run for Me. She says, I started to your podcast in order this week. I've gone through one through three. Your topics of discussion make for great journaling ideas. Thank you for opening my mind. Oh, that was very nice. I Live to Run for Me. So, and leave us some comments on Instagram. We love hearing from you. Yeah, and we'll read your reviews wherever you put them. Thank you so much for leaving such a great review. We're really excited to share today a special guest. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Timothy McCall. He's a board-certified internist, Yoga Journal's medical editor since 2002, and author of Amazon's number one bestseller, Yoga is Medicine, The Yogic Prescription for Health and Healing. He practiced medicine in the Boston area for a dozen years before devoting himself full-time in the late 1990s to yoga therapy. He studied with as many of the world's leading yoga teachers, including BKS Iyengar and TKV Desi Kachar. In 2005, Timothy began his studies with traditional Ayurvedic daughter, doctor excuse me, Chandakati Vanhar and spent more than a year in his clinic in Kerala, India. His latest book, Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer, is available on Amazon now. Welcome, Dr. McCall. It's my pleasure. Please call me Timothy. Oh, absolutely, Timothy. Well, we're very excited. Uh, in your new book, which we just finished reading, and at full disclosure, I'm on the last chapter still, so closing it up, um, you discuss your cancer story. Um, along with uh, many other things. And here at Where the Lotus Grows, we like to talk about the nitty-gritty, dirty part of growing and blooming into bigger, better things. Um, what can you share with our listeners about your story? Well, sure. You know, so I am, in my bones, a holist. And, and I think that maybe this is something that's worth talking about a little bit what holism is, because I find it to be a word that's often misunderstood. People think it means alternative as an alternative medicine or integrative or natural. And it really doesn't mean any of those things, although it overlap with things of those descriptions. What it really means is the whole body, mind, spirit, psychology, including the muddy stuff. All of that is being part of the path of yoga and part of the path of healing. So I was faced in 2016 with a cancer diagnosis. I had an oral cancer, basically a cancer grew on my right uh, tonsil, excuse me, my left tonsil, and spread to the right side of my neck. So I had metastatic head neck cancer uh, related to the human papillomavirus. And so I was going to need to get treated for this, and the question was how to do it. And I ended up deciding, because my brother is a professor of medicine at a pretty famous medical center, which I don't name in the book, which is in the Southeast United States. And 
Um, they're empty nesters and it just made sense for me to go live with them close to the cancer center and get trained at this world-class institution. But this world-class institution was definitely old school, especially when it comes to something like integrative medicine. They're at best agnostic and at worst, you know, not too warmly welcoming, that kind of stuff. So I had to go in there and I had to both be an assertive to get what I needed and try to come up with a holistic plan for myself. Now, part of holism is that even though my main diagnosis was cancer and the main situation I was going to be dealing with was treatments that have a lot of nasty side effects that I'm trying to reduce, um, the fact is that whatever is going on with you at the time of this diagnosis happens or you're undergoing treatment for it, the other is still very much there and, and holistically seen is part of what we want to address. So I had been doing a lot of psychological work and spiritual work and things that had been ongoing for many years. But in the crucible of cancer, I think some of that stuff maybe came up even more. And similarly, I had ruptured my quadricep tendon about, about just a few months before I was diagnosed with cancer. So even though what I'm dealing with is cancer and you know chemotherapy, radiation, the side effects and all that stuff, I'm very much still doing my psychological work and trying to rehab my leg. So so that's the kind of context and and uh, and, and you know and basically I got to the end I had no intention of writing a book about my experience. I was just trying to get through it. And, but I got to the end of it, and I realized, oh, my God, I learned so much. I have to write about this. And, and then I, I, I kind of thought what might be interesting for readers was to see, not, not, it's not a how-to guide. It's not like you got cancer, do this. It's like the opposite of that. It's like I had cancer. Here's my circumstance. One after another, I'm facing decisions, which treatments to have, how to deal with some side effect, whatever it is. And I've got to, in the moment, based on whatever research I can corral, I've got to come up with a plan. And so, and I thought it would be interesting to readers to see how somebody, you know, with my training in therapy, with my training in, in years of practice of medicine, how I went about confronting these different situations and figuring out what to do because I thought that process would help other people facing different situations but who have the same issue of having to make decisions, incomplete information, how do you move forward? Right. And I, and I think that that's what, um, that's what I gleaned from it. Like right from the beginning, one of the things that Kim and I discussed was just, um, everyone we know who's kind of had a struggle medically, um, even myself with um, having children, becoming a mother, like when something this serious and life altering comes in, then you're just start to clamor for research and clamor for information and just try to put it all together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you just, absolutely. And, and you know what I did, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with people having different opinions. You know, some people, when they study yoga, for example, they only want to see one lineage. They only want to get 
only teachers who were all going to say exactly the same thing. My approach was always the opposite. I mean, I did study a, a couple of different lineages very, very seriously, but I always was interested in where people didn't agree and where there was ambiguity and exploring that and trying to figure out what I thought. So I never had a problem with that. And so when it came to dealing with cancer, I read, you know, the memoir of the former director of the National Cancer Institute, who was like a hardcore chemotherapist. And I read, uh, you know, books that are, you might call cringe, crazy fringe alternative medicine. Cancer doesn't kill you. It's only cancer treatments that kill you, you know, which, you know, I don't believe. So, but the point is, I really cast a broad net and I really tried to get as much information from as many sources as I could. And you know what? I got some useful information out of that book that I just told you I thought was kind of crazy. It, among the craziness were some, were some gems too. So, and, and that was why that approach worked for me. Right. And I feel like your book kind of yeah. leads many of those things together. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Timothy, you, um, you do. I mean, it was really interesting to see how you advocated for yourself. And Tanya and I both work with clients uh, who are in the midst of their cancer treatment as well. And sometimes they use the words like, I felt abused by my practitioner when they ask about integrative services. So I'm wondering, do you have any inner wisdom now going through it yourself and kind of managing both worlds? Do you have any words of wisdom that you could pass on? So, so these are people who are dealing with physicians, uh, presumably, who are not open to integrative medicine, and yet that's what they want? Is that the question you have? Yes. Yeah, for, it, yes. For example, um, you know, I've, I've worked with clients in all stages of cancer, but um, sometimes I have clients who are, you know, even in stage four, and they're like, you know, I understand that there's a high probability that I may die from cancer, but I'd like to do the chemo radiation treatment, but also add in some integrative services. And they've been told, I won't work with you if you're going to do that. Yeah. Or if you go for a second opinion, you're going to hear the same thing. Right. And so they, that's when they come back and say they feel abused. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's, I, you, you probably recall from the book that I got to a, a phase with my oncologist who came highly recommended um, that uh, I had, you know, while I was in India, I went to India for, I had a, almost a month between uh, getting diagnosed and, and, and starting my, my treatments, actually more than that. But I spent a month of it in India getting Ayurvedic treatments to try to prepare me for what was to come. And um, so while I was there, I read a, you know, I read, integrative oncology textbook cover to cover. I had a stack of articles and a whole bunch of PDFs of articles on my cancer and current controversies and innovations and training it and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I read all that stuff. And I kind of, before I got to where I was going to get my treatment, I put together a whole plan. I was going to take a low dose of some herbs, which seemed to have some therapeutic potential and very important to me, extremely low risk of causing any problems with the chemotherapy or radiation. So I, I wanted things that were potentially going to be helpful and which were not going to interfere with my, my treatment. That was kind of one of the criteria I set. 
And, and so I had put together a plan which was very conservative. I wasn't taking a whole bunch of high-dose dietary supplements. I wasn't taking antioxidants, which are kind of controversial. I was doing a lot of dietary stuff, and I was you know, taking a low dose of some you know, ashwagandha uh, and you know, some other things, you know, medicinal mushrooms, things that are quite benign and are not going to interact, especially at the low doses. And my oncologist looked at this sheet that I had carefully printed out with everything I planned to take. And she said, eat whatever you want. I don't want you doing any of this. And as I wrote in the book, I thought to myself, you have just lost the right to be fully informed of what I'm doing. Now, that's not an ideal situation. You'd like your doctors to be in on the program. And I think if you have such a fundamental difference of opinion with your doctors about, about integrative stuff, then you really need to think about trying to find a different physician to run your care because it's, it's kind of an untenable situation. So much of what happens in medicine is not based on science. It's based on value judgments and how different people interpret the science and how much risk of side effects should you tolerate for how much you know, potential benefit. And how different people will weigh those equations will be very different. Some people who maybe don't have that long to live may really have quality of life in their final months. Other people are going to want to do everything possible to give them any shred of chance they might have. So those are value judgments. That's not meant. That's value judgments. I think what often happens is that doctors impose their values on their patients. And I don't think that's okay. And, and so, you know, I think most people in the yoga world probably don't know. But my first book, when I was practicing conventional internal medicine, was called Examining Your Doctor. And it was basically teaching people how to make sense of the recommendations their doctors make and to be more active, more asserting their values and being sure their values are reflected in the medical care they get. Um, that is sometimes made quite uncomfortable for people. Some people don't have the personality to do it. Some people, you know, of course, they're, they're being uh, dealing with cancer, dealing with toxic treatments for cancer, which can leave you exhausted, maybe depressed and whatever. And, and then in that situation to have to rise up and take on your doctors, maybe more than people can do. Um, I think, uh, you know, you've got, you've got to weigh those things. I felt with my background and my kind of, you can probably hear the fire that I have, (laughs) (laughs) that with my fire that I was going to be able to deal with this, that I was going to be able to deal with the situation of, of, by the way, excellent doctors, very well-intentioned and super competent at what they did. I mean, I had great doctors. I can't have any complaints. And, you know, they're brought up in a system that tells them that all this stuff, yoga, all these other things, are just kind of silly or or not really science-based. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an acupuncturist yesterday, and he was saying that he deals with physicians all the time who think that basically acupuncture is 
about as scientific as voodoo dolls, sticking pins in the dolls, instead he's sticking them into people. You know, I mean, so that's the kind of mentality that's out there. And now we know that that's crazy, um, but that's, that is what's out there. Now, on the other hand, I personally am also critical of some of the things that happen in alternative medicine. I think there are a lot of things, very high-dose dietary supplements, and all kinds of you know, people taking 20 different supplements. And, and I don't think that stuff is as safe as, as people assume. Uh, so I, I actually urge caution with, with that kind of stuff. And I, and I know why doctors are concerned. But the fact is, there's almost no evidence that acupuncture or basic Ayurveda lifestyle things or very low doses of herbs that have a good track record are going to cause any problems. There's almost no evidence of that. All the trouble that comes in alternative medicine, and it isn't even that much compared to what conventional medicine does, but the trouble that does come mostly comes from these high dose of what I call alternative reductions. They're in the world of alternative medicine, but it's the same principle as drugs. Super concentrate a chemical in a pill and use that to try to tweak some biochemical pathway in the body. That way of thinking is very common in alternative medicine. And I'm not saying it's bad. Sometimes those dietary supplements and high dose of vitamins are very helpful. But we need to understand as patients that those kind of things have more likelihood to interact negatively with other reduction treatments like drugs or radiation therapy, whereas a low dose of an herb, very low chance of, of interacting with any of that stuff in a bad way. Acupuncture, very low chance. Carefully selected yoga therapy where the practice is tailored to the individual and their particular set of circumstances, extremely low risk of causing it. So, but doc, because of this, I talk in the book that I think we have this false way of viewing healthcare. We look at conventional, modern medicine, scientific medicine, whatever you call it on one hand, alternative medicine, integrative medicine, complementary alternative medicine, whatever on the other hand. That is a false distinction, I believe, and it causes all kinds of trouble. What, what is the real distinction is between reductionist treatments, and again, I'm not opposed to them. I use them in my cancer care. Okay, but you got to be more careful. They have more side effects. They interact more with other things in a negative way. Okay, you just need to be, they, they become less effective over time. Those are just characteristics of reductionist treatments. Holistic treatments are things that are not designed to fight the disease per se. They're designed to take the person and bring them into a better state of balance. And, and, and so those kind of things are extremely safe. You know, someone's got a vata derangement. You have them eat more, more warmed, cooked meals. You, you, you have them have a more regular schedule. That's not going to cause any problems with anything. Okay. And, but, but because we've lumped ancient holistic healing, very safe and effective with, um, all kinds of, other alternative things, unclear safety, unclear effectiveness often, you know, some promise in many directions. Again, I'm not against these things, but I think we need to understand this distinction that it's about whether we're trying to take the body, mind, and spirit in one way or another. 
together, help it move toward better balance, or whether we're trying to tweak a biochemical pathway or cut a part of the body out of the body with surgery, whatever it may be. Oh, that's that's really wonderful. Um, I I appreciate. I think that's what makes this book so empowering is that you kind of do offer that because you have uh, the whole, for, for lack of a better term, the whole holistic background. Like you see it from all sides. Um, then reading, I I really felt that, um, and I think. Kim and I both in our practices try to empower our clients to um, do the same to like you, you were speaking of the imposed values. Um, and, and I think that that's where there's, there's really a fine line. I, I know uh, helping my aunt go through her cancer treatment. I went with her to an appointment and the doctor um, seemed a little condescending and frustrated. Like, oh, did you just pull these questions off the internet? <laughs> because everyone has the internet now. So it's kind of like we are a little more informed. And then the other side of that is, um, but also making that choice that we're no longer in a state because we're more informed where we believe everything the doctor says is concrete and we just follow it with no questions asked. And so I think that we're in this middle, middle place, um, which is why I think. And, and you know, doctor, yeah, when a when a patient has questions that the doctor didn't used to get routinely, and you know, don't forget the doctors are under pressure to see patients faster and to be right. more efficient and to have more throughput and kind of industrial language, you know, and and so one of the hassles of integrative medicine for them is that it takes more time. They got to talk to people about diet. They got to talk about their lifestyle. They got to go into psychology. And a lot of doctors don't want to do that. They don't want to go there in spirituality. Forget it. You know? So, so it's, it's, those patients become more difficult. And, And we also have to have compassion for the doctors. They're being squeezed on both ends. They, they got no time. They got incredible pressure. They've got, you know, ones in private practice and you know, huge overhead costs, which go up every year. You know, so there's, there's so many pressures on, on doctors. I mean, we don't want to be about bad-mouthing doctors. Yeah, I had brilliant doctors, even if I disagreed with, with some of the things they said. Mm-hmm. And did. I still respected them for, for what they have. And, um, you know, doctors have already given up their power to the insurance companies or had it taken away by the insurance companies and the government. And, and of course, patients are trying to take some of that power away, too. And you can, <laughs> after years of, you know, you know, whatever you say, you're the doctor, kind of, uh, you know, this new approach may not be that welcome. No, they can, it can be felt. And you know, in your book, you... Oh, go ahead, Kim. <laughs> I was going to say, in your book, you talked about your Ayurvedic practitioner. and You spoke about him being a great clinician and that his work could not uh, fully be downloaded into his son. So maybe perhaps some of his healings were lost for future generations. And I'm wondering, with you coming from um, an allopathic background and also studying yoga therapy, steps as yoga therapists could we take to be better clinicians so that we capture that healing work that's happening for future generations? 
Yeah, that's a that that that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, you know, someone like my my Ayurvedic doctor, name is Chandakuri Vaidya, who, who died two years ago, and uh, who was steeped in Ayurveda from the time he was an infant. Okay, and he just grew up all around it, and it was his entire life. And very few people in the modern world are willing to make that kind of total. You know, in India, there's this big rise in the class and consumerism, and people get cars and motorcycles and big TVs and all this kind of same stuff that's been happening in the West for a lot of years. It's really hit India big in the last 100 years, and it's, and, it's, and it's growing. And so it's very hard to get people to do that. And you know, one of the things I point out in the book is that learning something like in an ancient field like yoga or Ayurveda, it's very different if you start to learn it when you're three or when you're six, as opposed to when you're 25 or when you're 40. And you think about a concert musician, you know, nobody who starts the piano at 12 ever becomes a concert musician by and large, because they're just too far behind. The people who started at three are just, no, they'll never catch them, you know? And I think the same thing is true with some of these things. Um, on the other hand, you know, we don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And you know what? We may never reach the level of TKV Deskachar or BKS Ankar or any of these yoga masters. That doesn't mean that we can't take people who are some and we notice that, oh, you know what, they're kind of slumping in their spine or their, you know, their breath is kind of rough and they seem to hold it sometimes. Wow, ayurvedically so out of balance. You know, we can look at these things and we can do things within the limits of what we know and understand and, and try to help people and, and succeed. And, and, you know, are we going to succeed to the same level of, of the master? Probably not, but we can really help and ultimately, of course, you know, yoga is not about us healing people. It's about us introducing tools to people that they have to go do. And that if they do in a diligent way, are very likely to lead to change. And even potential, and this never happens in modern medicine, to real kind of personal transformation, life transformation. Okay? We can't control that. Um, but but uh, we, 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 we do the best we can. And of course, you know, one of the prerequisites of being a good yoga therapist or being a good Ayurvedic practitioner is that you need to be walking the path yourself. And the more you walk the path yourself, the more years you put into your regular practice, and the more you go into the muck, into the difficult areas, the more you're going to be able to know yourself better and the more you're going to be able to see your patients where they're at and help. So, so, and, and, you know, yoga is relatively new in America and, and, and we're deepening. I'm hoping in 20 or 30 years we'll be deeper than we are today so that we will have, you know, real masters who have grown up on this soil and who yet have walked the path long enough and deeply enough that they really will have something amazing. And, you know, yoga and Ayurveda are not, are not static things where the thing from the past is the perfect thing. There are things that are ongoing that evolve, that deal with new understanding and, and new situations that people find themselves 
So what's the yogic approach to, uh, you know, internet addiction? Well, you know, nobody had to deal with that 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 5,000 years ago, you know? So we're having to figure it out ourselves. <laughs> That's nice. You know, you speak uh, both about yoga therapy and Ayurveda, and I just... Um, I think from from your standpoint in reading, you know, the two really go together well. Um, right. But from our educational purposes and kind of scope of practice, they're two totally different things. So, but we have to be, um, or at least for myself, I feel Ayurvedically informed, <laughs> and that that yeah. helps to inform my yoga therapy practice. Um, do you think that yeah. there? a future for that to kind of merge more together? Well, um, I, you know, I should, I should tell you my history. I mean, you guys know it because you read the book, but I was initially kind of skeptical of Ayurveda when I first came to it. It kind of reminded me of, you know, Hippocrates and Greek medicine. We were all, of course, all taught in school. That was ancient, quaint nonsense, you know, and, and I think I kind of had that attitude when I first heard about, you know, bodily humors and, you know, change of climates and all this kind of stuff being major determinants of health. I, I, I didn't, I don't think, take it quite that seriously. Um, but I've come to believe that Ayurveda is a wonderful complement to yoga. Even if, you know, you're never going to become an Ayurvedic practitioner and most yoga teachers or therapists never are going to be Ayurvedic practitioners and you don't have to be. Mm -hmm. The point is, you know, what we're trying to do in yoga therapy and even in yoga to the extent we can in things, is to personalize the, the prescription for each person and their unique set of circumstances. And then as their circumstances evolve, change what we recommend to them. And Ayurveda is unbelievably helpful in doing that and in seeing, you know, which of your students you need to encourage to do more and which of your students you need to encourage to do less. And, and if you have even a basic understanding, you'll know that basically the common ones are like, oh, I'm trying as hard as I can when they don't seem like they're doing too much. And, and the pittas, their eyes are bugging out and they're, and, you know, they're looking really uncomfortable and their breath is rough because they're just trying so hard because that's their habitat. So, so even that basic stuff. And, and, you know, the thing, I mean, the beauty of Ayurveda is that even a basic understanding can help you, help you see yourself better, help you go deeper in your yoga practice, help you choose yoga practices that are appropriate for you. Because one of the great messages of Ayurveda, one of the, I think, just brilliant pieces is this idea is that when we're out of balance, we're often drawn to practices, in the case of yoga, which are just the opposite of what we need. So we're vata deranged, our, head, our mind is going 100 miles an hour, uh, we're not, we're, our feet aren't firmly planted on the ground, and we want to do yoga because it's exciting and fun it's up in the air and love it you know and it's like no actually that's the opposite of what you should be doing you know and 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 and, and the people who are the couple ones they're like lying over the bolsters because it just feels so nice and it's those ones who are up in the air on the slings that need to be on the bolsters and the ones who are on the bolsters who need to be up in the air on the slings you know if you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely. absolutely. So. In, in the book, you talk about chanting uh, quite a bit. And I'm wondering, was there one particular chant that felt most healing to you? And if so, why? Well, I, I have uh, also have a kind of interesting history with chanting because I wasn't that open to chanting either when I first came to yoga. I mean, I wasn't like morally opposed to it, but I'd had kind of a religion shoved down my throat as a kid and it kind of brought up a lot of toxic stuff for me when I first got to chanting yoga. But I got interested in the effects of sound and the way sound resonates in different areas of the body and how sound could be directed for potentially healing purposes to different areas of the body. I'm kind of fascinated by that. So that was kind of my backdoor way into chanting. Now, there are certain mantras, like the Gayatri Mantra and the Mahamrita Jaya Mantra, you know, Trayambakam Nijamahe, you know, that one. So those are said to be particularly healing mantras pretty much for everybody. So I, I use those. I also had a personal mantra, which was, was also the mantra I used for meditation, which I did chant out loud sometimes, uh, which was uh, more of a kind of a goddess mantra, a Durga mantra, the, 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 you know, the Hindu goddess Durga. And, and so I used that as part of my healing. And, and so th- those were all, I think, very therapeutic for me. Uh, and on probably a bunch of levels. And, you know, the thing about chanting, is it also seems to really gain in potency with repetition. And so it's not uncommon in India for someone to chant something like the Gayatri Mantra 1.1 million times or 2.2 million times. And, and the thing is, once you, and I haven't done anything like that number, but I've done a lot, and I've noticed that over the years, at the same chance that I used to do, feel like they've become more powerful. Yes, I felt that in my own chanting practice. Um, the longer that I chant, the more it seems to resonate through my whole body. Yeah. You know, when I first start to chant it, maybe the, the, the vibration isn't that strong, and then it becomes stronger and longer. That's nice. Thank you. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, Timothy, in your previous uh, two other books, they were more informative and educational, and this was more memoir style. And I, we were both very curious and how, or if there was a difference, but how was it different writing something super personal like this? Right, right. Well, and, and you know, the funny thing is that it's not exactly a straight memoir because there's actually right. quite a lot of teaching and other stuff that's in there. But so, for example, the whole business on the distinction of holism versus reductionism is being absolutely crucial to understand if you want to get good health care. I've been saying that stuff for 15 years, 20 years, and I can't get anyone to pay any attention to it. And, 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 and on some level, to like really get it, understand like how like vital it is to understand it. If you don't understand what I've just said, you need to go out and read the book because honestly, this will change the way you view healthcare for the rest of your life. And I've been trying to teach this to people for years and they kind of get it and then you kind of forget about it. And so part of me wanted to put this message in a book that was a memoir that does have what I hope is a compelling and interesting and even if in places you wouldn't think it from a cancer memoir, fun, you know, that there's, that it's interesting. 
you know, uh, so, so, uh, but yeah, uh, I had to learn how to write memoirs and I'd never done it before. I, I, I'd always, you know, written more like self-helpy kind of stuff or more straight on educational stuff. And, and, and this was really a, 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 a person, a personal memoir and going into, as you guys like to put it, the mud, uh, that the Lotus grows out of, uh, to, to get down into that stuff. And then, so, you know, one of the things I did when I first realized I was going to do this was I went back and I, I mean, I've read memoirs over the years, but I went back and I probably read memoirs last year and just to kind of learn a thing. And, uh, you know, honestly, it was a learning process. I, I had to kind of figure it out and I had a help of, a. You know, a, a couple of really good editors I worked with who also helped, you know, draw me out in certain ways, uh, tell me, no, 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 you can't add and this section with that. You got to now tell us how that made you feel or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. I, I kind of had to learn, learn, learn some of those, learn some of those lessons. Over the years, uh, I I have friends who are healing practitioners, and sometimes when they become ill, uh, there's a lot of shame that they've become ill, and it's part of them facing their own sanity. So I'm wondering, when you were first diagnosed, did you have any shame or self-blame that happened? No, I don't. I don't really think I, I, I did. I mean, I've lived a pretty clean life, and yes, as part of trying to get over cancer and the cancer treatments. I have upped my game and gotten even better with my diet and, and all that. But no, I was, you know, I was already in like the, you know, whatever, 99th percentile for good health. So I wasn't going to blame myself. I mean, I could look back at my karma. It's part of what I try to do in the book, right? You know, what happened to me as a, as a kid, family, in my, you know, crazy dysfunctional Irish Catholic family. And, you know, just <laughs> getting into all that stuff. and seeing how that kind of laid some of the groundwork for what folded within my life. But uh, I, I don't think shame was about it. I mean, you can see why people would have that. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you something. I do mention one thing. So one thing that happened to me that was that I got, I, my marriage split up just before I got diagnosed with cancer. And I did have shame about telling people that the marriage had failed. That, that was something I felt like, oh, that, that shouldn't happen. And, you know, and yet it is what happened, and, and so I did deal with shame in that moment. But around the cancer, no, and you know the funny thing is, you know, of course HPV is actually transmitted disease, and I read all this stuff. Oh, there's all this stigma about HPV cancers. I ne- I haven't confronted one person who seemed to have that attitude. I've, I haven't heard that from anybody, and I don't feel any shame about it. I mean, you know, HPV is an infection that's something like 90% of sexually active people get at some point in their life. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just blame myself because I got that. I mean, no, it's just crazy. So, uh, so no, not there, but um, shame does raise its head a couple times in the book. Well, I think it's important, too, for people to understand uh, oral cancer isn't all from smoking. And, I, you know, I still hear people, you know, not sure whether they want to give their children vaccines for the HPV virus. 
And um, so I thought that that was, you know, it was a good kind of public service announcement too at the beginning of the book to talk about that and to think about Well, that. and you know, one of the things uh, that I confronted was that most doctors, including me, I have to admit, at the time that I first got the growth on my tonsil that I spotted, it was very small, were clueless about these HPV cancers. They didn't know about them. My two primary care doctors didn't know about them. My best friend from medical school didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. Um, the dentist who prides himself on screening for oral cancers hadn't heard of tonsillar cancer. So the word had really gotten out. And now, and part of it was that there's been a confusion. So in the past, the overwhelming majority of oral cancers were caused by people who either smoked he- heavily, drank heavily, and often both. Okay? And the problem was that the HPV cancers look under the microscope identical to the ones that are caused by smoking and drinking. And so up until just a few years ago, they were assumed to be the same disease. But now they understand that they're two completely different cancers that have the same name and look the same under the microscope, unless you do special tests to differentiate them, which they now have. Um, and so they were confused and they were treated the same, even though that's probably not the correct thing to do, but that's the way they continue to be treated the same as. Nobody exactly knows what to do. And that was part of one of the things I had to deal with, this kind of uncertainty of the best way to approach these cancers because the HPV ones have a much higher prognosis. Now, I know many people are skeptical of vaccines and, and, and I think a case to be made that more vaccines are given than need to be given like any other medical intervention vaccine and side effects. But I tell you, there was no option for an HPV vaccine when I was a kid. And uh, what I went through, you know, it's been a growth experience. I wouldn't change anything, but I also wouldn't wish it on my worst thing. You know, and, and the idea that a, that a vaccine might prevent something this bad, and something, by the way, you could inadvertently uh, you know, give someone else the virus that turned into them. You know, so, so I, I think we need to weigh those factors and, uh, but, but but certainly under, that, that was another reason I think I wanted to write the book there is so much ignorance about this and I, and I wanted to try to help no I, I totally agree I, I wasn't aware that this was a thing <laughs> until I read your book and um, having familiarity with HPV you know I think for a very long time the awareness that we have of it you know we know that it, it results in cervical cancer for women. And I think for a long time, there was just this, well, it doesn't do anything to men. And there's, do, do you know what I mean? Like there was this, sure. that sure. might've been part of the stigma was that, um, which I don't, I agree with you. I think so many people have it and are carriers of it, that it's really not that big of a deal. Um, but I think that for a very long time, it was just seen as a, a, um, a woman's issue. Right. Yeah, all cancers are, of course, much more common. Right. Well, we really appreciate you sharing everything that you shared with us today, Timothy. Kim, did you have any I, final questions? I thought you had a few more. 
I did. I have two more. Uh, when I read your book, it's just like you bled onto the pages. It's as if I was standing in the room observing everything happening. And so I'm wondering, you gave so much of yourself. Is there any possibility that there might be a documentary movie later on? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I mean, the, uh, you know, the thought that somebody might want to turn into a movie has occurred to me, but, you know, no, I mean, I'm not taking any steps to make that happen. You know, I, I think like a lot of yogis, I kind of feel like things just sort of happen or they don't. I don't need to orchestrate it. So I think if that's meant to happen, it'll happen. I'd be, I'd be open to that. But, but I, it's not for me. I'm actually, well, we both so what's next after you become a cancer yeah, yeah, exactly. What's next uh, for, you know, you're a cancer driver, and so I'm wondering what's next on that self-discovery journey, and um, whether it be as an MD or a yoga therapist. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I practiced medicine starting in, in the 1980s, and I practiced into the late 1990s. And so I actually haven't had a medical practice. Uh, you know, for uh, so, you know, I am primarily a practitioner and I would say a scholar. And so I am on this path of, of walking the path of yoga and, and learning as much as I can about yoga. I am obviously teaching. I, I teach workshops all the world. I teach seminars. And, uh, you know, I've got ideas for probably more books than I'm going to be able to write in my life. So I'm, you know, going to, going to be continuing to write, continuing to study, um, heading back to India again next winter for another long Ayurvedic treatment, which ends up being a, a beautiful personal retreat. Time, like, you know, and, and what happened to me last time uh, I did such a long retreat was that this book just poured out of me. I, I wasn't, I, I brought my computer with me and I thought, well, if I feel like it, maybe I'll work on it when I'm there, but no expectation. And then what happened was it just poured out of me. Thousands and thousands of words every day poured out of me. I, I it's, it's a pretty big book. It's almost 400 pages and it was three times as long before I started editing it, editing it. So, so I have more writing. I have more exploring. And I'm just going to follow this path and see where it takes me. I'm taking a sabbatical from teaching for, for, I, mean, this is, we're recording this in just, uh, you know, beginning of, of the summer in, in 2019. I'm not going to teach again until May of, except for one workshop in Texas in December. Other than that, I'm taking what I'm calling a sabbatical because I'm staying home like a staycation, but I'm on a sabbatical. And I'm letting it unfold. You know, one thing that happened, uh, you know, I put a bunch of photographs in the book of various things that I experienced in India over the years, just some cool things I saw and they happened to take pictures of. And, you know, but totally really just an amateur photographer. But the thing that happened to me, I think in the process of putting together the photos from this book and thinking about it, was that the last time I went to India, I found myself really getting into photography. I'm a whole bunch more. And I actually just provided a recent birthday and I just got a, a, a nice new camera and I'm 
out. I was out yesterday in the woods taking photos. So that seems to be this, I, you know, I had a background in fine arts. You know, kind of interested in fine arts photography. I mean, as a kid, I was a painter. I had done it for 40 years. And then suddenly, like, wow, I'm like, seemingly like my life is bringing me back to this thread of fine arts being uh, reintroduced into the tapestry of my life. So I'm following that. So wherever life takes me, that's where I'm going. That's all I can tell you. (laughs) That is absolutely awesome. We really appreciate so much you taking the time to share this with not just us, but our listeners. And we certainly are very excited to share your book with them as well. Um, As we wrap up, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, the best place, this is my website, which is just uh, Dr. McCall, D-R-M-C-C-A-L-L.com, drmccall.com. If you just do a, you know, search under my name, Timothy McCall and yoga, so, so you can you find information on the book there. You can uh, find out other stuff. Uh, I, have a, I have a newsletter that you could sign up for if you wanted to. All of that's on my website. So, uh, and uh, I will keep anyone who's out coming to my website or anyone who's on my newsletter, you will be finding out what it is I'm going to be doing as I figure it out. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. So much, Dr. McCall. We're so happy to have you. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Kim. I really enjoyed talking to you both. And uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Where the Lotus Grows. Join us in further conversations. We believe that you bring valuable knowledge to this community. You can find us at wherethelotusgrows.com. Where the Lotus Grows on Instagram and Facebook. Or Twitter, wherethelotusg1 because we were not on top of that one. Remember that though we are professionals in our field, the topics discussed and or advice given is general information and not intended to treat or diagnose. Please seek the guidance of a medical, integrative health, bodywork, or yoga therapy professional for a full evaluation. If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform.